Hello, and welcome to NORC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators. Today is March 2020, and we're experiencing a global pandemic. But today I want to talk about a different kind of contagion, the kind that follows abuse and betrayal trauma in a narcissistic relationship or one with any cluster B person with that type of personality disorder. There's something called narc cooties that get on to people. They latch on. They're like blood-sucking little leeches that, that just suck the blood right out of you. These nasty little buggers uh, just linger after narcissistic abuse. Um, and the longer you're in these relationships, the more of these narc cooties that you walk away with. So let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, the first stage is what I call the infestation. After the discard, they leave everything behind. I live in the wreckage of a life that no longer exists. Nine months later, I am still living in our home, and I often just expect him to come through the door at any minute. I think I hear him driving into the garage. Out of the corner of my eye, I think I see his shadow walking from room to room. I look over at his desk, and I expect to see him there, toiling over his current art project. I bring napkins for two when I need only napkins for one when I sit down to have my dinner alone. I had often complained that I would like to relocate because of some of the bad things that he had done in our home, and I think his final gesture was to show me that he won, which is really important to them, that he won because now he has consigned me to live and die in that house that I so desperately wanted to leave, to live somewhere else. Now it has become like a coffin for me in so many ways. So when my husband discarded me in June of 2019, nine months ago, he left behind 16 years of his life, except for two things. Number one, what he could fit into a duffel bag. And number two, his beloved espresso machine. Now, there are reasons why they do this. They want to bury you along with any evidence of their life with you so they can start fresh and reinvent themselves around a new supply. They often move far away, switch careers, and change their appearance, habits, likes and dislikes, and even the way they maybe speak or even dress. They become so suddenly and drastically different that they are unrecognizable to their former partner. They are chameleons like that. My ex boasted many times about how easily he adapted to new things and how much he embraced change. He would trade out his wardrobe on a regular basis. I would come downstairs sometimes on Sunday morning to discover the entire living space had been rearranged. The examples of this fluid identity were endless, but they were contained to a large degree so that I never made much of them. I just wrote it off as this is quirky behavior, but okay, he's weird. 
it never crossed my mind that he would tire of me just like he did his surroundings and his clothes and all of that. And that he would find it so easy to dispose of me along with all of the other stale items. It was not until the day he suddenly announced that he was leaving that I was hit with the realization that nothing had ever been constant in his life, including me. So after this initial infestation, these vermin lay eggs. They encode and implant in their victims these eggs that infect their brains and they live on in them long after they have um, departed. The golden period of their relationship is made up of this love bombing and conditioning of the new partners in ways that make, a, make them uh, incapable of escape. We, we can't leave. Um, they encode everything with this conditioning that creates something called ever-presence. That means there will be no place, no song, no food, no experience, no nothing that is left untouched by their mark. When they leave, their discarded supply will be unable to escape these constant feelings of connection to the narcissist because of these eggs that have been laid all in in all of the nooks and crannies of their victim. It's also called imprinting, and this imprinting takes many forms. The narcissist is certain to is to take great care to brand each experience with their own personal stamp that becomes embedded in their partner's mind, body, and soul. It could be their trademark way of touching you that is stamped each time you become intimate. It could be a ritual uh, comment to claim territory over a dominion like sleep. My narcopath and I had a bedtime ritual consisting of me putting eucalyptus essential oil between our pillows each night as we prepared to go to sleep. And he would always say, what's that smell? followed by playful giggles and then some silliness and then cozying up and um, the same spooning position with the pillows plumped in the same way, all placed strategically. It was a routine. It was ingrained, deeply ingrained. That was a, a olfactory smell sensation coupled with the, the verbal cue that where he would say the whole triggering comment every evening, the pillows, the position, all of that deeply laying those eggs into my, all my senses, all of my senses. Um, and so since this departure, I cannot use the eucalyptus anymore. I can't smell it. I, I can't sleep on my side of the bed. I can't stop longing for that familiar routine. For years we did this, years and years and years. And it's a terribly uh, deep thing to have to deal with. So I always told him that this bedtime ritual was the best part of my day. And, and it, it's hardwired into me after years of repetition as a comfort mechanism before having a good night's sleep. Needless to say, now there is no good night's sleep um, ever since D-Day, the discard day. 
So back to this thing called ever-presence. It is created in ways so that even when they're gone, the victim feels as if they are completely enveloped and consumed by their presence with no possibility of escape. Many former partners of narcopaths report an eerie sense that they are still being watched or that their ex-partner is still nearby, even in the same house. Their presence is almost corporeal, even if they have relocated physically to a new life thousands of miles away. Many say that they have claimed our souls with energy cords that bind you to them, regardless of the space between you. And each time you fall prey to thoughts of them, the energy cords grow stronger. Allegedly, they can still feed on you remotely from a distance. So the third part of this is called contagion. This is when those eggs hatch and they invade every part of your body, mind, and soul. They multiply like a virus, like a coronavirus. And you feel them just little tiny viral things crawling right underneath your skin all the time. These subtle and endearing little eggs are tucked away in all of the fertile parts of your brain and every inch of your body in ways that make it impossible to escape or to forget. Their attachment to you is organic and it involves a complete sensory overload. We've been programmed and conditioned to feel certain things when random triggers are set off or employed. I can recall with painful acuity the smell of his skin, his hair, his sweat, his breath, his semen, his feet, all of it. I hear his voice in my head, in my dreams. It's so real. In these dreams, my fingers trace his skin, every scar, every birthmark, and it's so real I wake up with tears on the pillow and my arms outstretched holding on to nothing, to thin air. The foods we claimed as our own from tiramisu to our favorite pizza is now also a trigger that transports me to desolation and despair. I don't even cook anymore. I can't eat the things that we ate together. I never go to our restaurants anymore. And also, another little cherry on top, every pretty young 20-something-year-old girl I see, wherever I see her, makes me wonder if the girl, the, the girls, uh, plural, that he's sleeping with now all look like that and feel like the perfect, fresh version of these people that I'm seeing everywhere I go. I could almost feel what he felt when he touched me. And now... Here's the really messed up part. I can almost feel what he feels when he touches them. I can still taste him and feel him in ways that come upon me like a tsunami and flood my mind and body with feelings I can't stop. The places we went, the things we saw, all of it ruined for me now. So many places forever stolen from me and destroyed with these memories that haunt me so that it's like visiting a graveyard. The places he took from me that we went together, now forever gone. Paris, Rome, Florence, Venice, London, the West Coast, the East Coast, Santa Fe, 
Denver, Vancouver, BK, Quebec, and the list goes on and on. We traveled so many places, and I can't return and try to fight back the flood of imprinted memories that break my heart all over again to any of those places. I can never go back to any of them because his ghost is there and the feelings are overwhelming. I think that these narcissists with these personality disorders, these sociopaths and sometimes sociopaths that with Machiavellian ten- tendencies, I think that they know what they do most of the time. There's supposed to be three levels of narcissists, the lower, the middle, and then the grand narcissist that's at the top and who's like some super uh, narcissist or something. The lower ones don't know what they do, I don't think. I think that they're a victim too. They don't even understand what they're doing. They don't know why they're doing it, all of that. But the middle ones have some cognitive awareness of what's happening. I don't think they understand why, or I think that they're very quick to blame shift, to project, to deny it. I'll tell you, one of the most tragic parts of all of this is that my husband turned on me after uh, after he decided to go, all in just like, I don't know, it felt like in five minutes he went from this husband that was great to someone who just had such contempt for me and looked, looked like he wanted to kill me. And his his voice changed. His Everything about him changed in just almost like an instant. It You'd have to see it to believe it. He was unrecognizable. And in that transformative few minutes where he went from one person to the next person, I think somehow he made himself believe that I was the one who was the bad guy and that he was the victim, even though he was the one telling me, uh, I've decided I don't care about you anymore and I'm leaving. I want a divorce. I don't love you. I don't want to be physically attached to you or emotionally attached to you. He's saying all of this stuff, but somehow believing that I'm at fault, not him. It's just the craziest, most messed up stuff. And here's another scary part. I've talked to so many people, so many people, and I've read so much stuff about this and it's almost like they're all reading from the same script they say the same things they do the same things in the same way they leave their partners at the end in the same way the cycles and phases of the relationship are the same it's it's just the strangest thing it's like they're all reading from the same script you know, I even think he got some pleasure out of it. He, on that last day, he he was smirking. He was looking at his phone and reading texts and laughing. Looking back, I should have grabbed that phone right out of his hand, just snatched it and looked at who that was, who the girl was, who was sending him texts that made him laugh while he was trying to tell his wife that he was leaving her out of the blue with no warning. Yeah, I would love to know who she was and what he had told her. Heaven only knows what he told her. 
Surely no human being with any conscience at all could participate in something like that if she knew the truth of what was going on, that I was devoted to him and loyal to him and loving him and doing the best I could to to save the relationship and make it good, even though he kept doing these terrible things over and over and over again. If You know, I, I just, I have to wonder what he had t- made her believe. But yeah, he was laughing, smirking at texts that his phone would go bing and he would read it and then laugh, throw his head back and, or he would look at me and smirk like, hmm, huh. And I was just incredible, incredible. Um, You know, I think that he was confident that he was in charge and that he could do whatever he wanted to do. And he did, you know, through the years he fed my addiction and enjoyed the power that it gave him to wield such control over another person. He liked having me powerless. He liked knowing that I, he could do anything to me and I wasn't ever going to leave because I was trauma bonded to him. So he knew that he would probably be the last man that I would ever love. And um, he just enjoyed that so much. So the last section I want to say today to tell you about is called the pesticide. The pesticide. Victims have that, and they can deprogram the toxic script embedded through this intermittent trauma. And it's through intermittent trauma that causes trauma bonding, which makes it impossible to leave. Nobody understands that. My friends and family don't understand why I didn't leave. He would do horrible things, betray me in some very humiliating ways, and then he would be the perfect, perfect husband for months. And then he would do something else horrific, and then he would be perfect. And this went on for 16 years, married for 15 of those. So how do we break free from this narcissistic abuse cycle after years of conditioning and dependency and attachment and addiction? Well, first of all, unless they have experienced trauma bonding in the aftermath, let's just forget about anybody else understanding this. Don't expect them to help you or to have any idea what you're experiencing. Don't expect them to think you're even sane or stable because they're not going to. And, um, so that's the first thing to say. Secondly, you, you really have to form your own alliances. Build a tribe of people who are going through the same journey. Remember that most of these relationships could be temporary. The only thing you may have in common with them is the fact that you've been discarded or that you've managed to escape from uh, a personality-disordered mate and that you are going through all the withdrawal, and um, that you're having that trauma bonding that you're trying to break free of and all of that. You know, having someone who's going through that too, I cannot tell you how, how necessary that is. You have to find them. Um, And then when it's all over, if you find out you really don't have that much in common, and you're not lifetime friends, okay, that's fine. You know, you still 
went to war together. Everybody who goes to war together does not come home after the war and become BFFs for the rest of their life. But you do have an allegiance to these people and a respect for them because you fought in those trenches with them, that life and death battle. And that's what you're going to do with these people that you find. You're going to go to war with them, fighting against a common enemy. So, you know, these people could move away, reconcile with family, hook up with a replacement to help anesthetize the pain. Who knows? They're going to probably move on in one way or another. We hope that each other will move on. But at least your partner's in misery. You can lean on each other. You can go for midnight drives in your pajamas when you can't sleep. You can go to all-night restaurants and eat waffles at 3 a.m. You can go to movie marathons and eat popcorn drowned in butter. Are you noticing a theme here that's involving food? Yes, I do eat my feelings. Hold their hand, you know, when they're crumbling and just listen as they weep and wail. Take weekend trips and pretend you're both free of these things that bind you and squeeze you till you can't breathe and you don't want to breathe and every breath is so horrible. This joint despair isn't going to last forever. But for that time, you are sisters in arms. Or if your narcissist was a female, you're brothers in arms, wounded warriors fighting for your life. Another suggestion that can be your pesticide, get help professional help like therapists and counselors and medical professionals go to a place of worship and connect with them for support and systems there find healers in your community and explore healing modalities research and educate yourself about the things that worked for other people and let me say this you need to vet these people the therapists the counselors the medical professionals the 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 religious support you need to make sure that they have dealt with abuse trauma you need to be sure that they have experience with um people who have been through abusive relationships because if they are not versed in this if they don't haven't dealt with that and they're treating it like a generic breakup then they can't help you they don't speak your language They're not going to get it. And even if they're a professional, they're not prepared. They're not equipped to deal with this. I promise you, you need to find someone who specializes in that area. And you can find them online too. You don't have to go in person. You can find online support for people that are victims of, of abusive relationships. So you just have to research and educate yourself and uh, find what works. There are things like, Um, pattern interrupt to halt the panic attacks, for example, Um, or do EFT tapping to reprogram your neural pathways. Um, Consider prescription medication. Even if you've always been antithetically opposed to it, it could be the, the reason you could be struggling is could be because of the chemical imbalances in your brain that are trying to adjust and you're, suffering from addiction, withdrawal, and obsessive thinking. And sometimes you need medicine to interrupt that. I took Celexa for three weeks and it made me, uh, and every, let me just, one caveat, everyone responds differently to medicine. Uh, 
and what works for one doesn't always work for everybody. But after doing this for three weeks, I found I was bombarded like shotgun spray or something with thoughts of him that I couldn't control. They increased the thoughts of my ex actually just were just constantly hitting me. Boom, 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 just nonstop. But I didn't react to them with panic attacks and, and being distraught. I had been so leveled out by the medicine that I couldn't do anything but just sit there and take it and just say, ow, 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 that kind of hurts. Ow, ow, ow. It was like that. And I decided, well, I, you know, first of all, I don't want to be dreaming about him more. I don't want to be flooded with these thoughts about him more. And I don't want to be able to respond and just to be kind of flatlined, numbed out in a way that prevents me from dealing with it, you know. So I stopped taking it um, and I talked to the doctor about it. And But, you know, the weird thing about it is after I stopped taking it, I felt better, better than I had felt before I had ever started taking it in the first place. It's and the only way I can explain this is that three weeks of it, and it's an SSRI blocker, it actually works with the neurotransmitters in your brain. I think it was like a computer reboot. You know, when your computer doesn't work, how you just power down and restart it, and then magically it's functioning again. I think it was like that with my brain, that this was a powering down for three weeks where my brain was numbed up with the the neurotransmitters were firing off differently and connections were interrupted and broken and neural pathways got to relax and just go to sleep for a little bit or something. I mean, I'm not explaining this in medical terms by a long shot, but I'm just trying to, to say it helped me. So you have to find, um, you know, what helps you, that way you have to find your own way trial and error lots of trial and error uh you just need to find help and do whatever it takes to get control and then the last thing i want to say to you today is that finally the most important thing is that you must accept the reality of what has happened accept reality it is done and there's nothing you can do to undo what has been done to you Reminds me of something Lady Macbeth said, but that's another story. Anyway, you will entertain ways to exact your revenge. You will howl at the moon in grief that comes from knowing that they cannot be saved or healed or helped or made to live in the real world that you are forced to live in. All that magical thinking, all of that twisted, impaired, dysregulated maladapted thinking that these poor people have to live with this person who had you trapped in this crazy relationship. They have their own limits as because they are mentally unstable and have different brain physiology. They have their amygdala is different from a normal person. The gray matter is different. The way they think is different. The way they feel is different. What and how they feel is different. You're not living in the same world as they do. You have to accept that. 
their magical thinking is not reality and you don't live in la-la land. They do. You don't. You can't go there and live in that place with them. You can't. You have to accept these things. You are going to long for them and cling to them and hold on to every last shred of them in efforts to feel that you have a little tiny piece of what it was that you lost, what they took from you, but it's not going to work. They're gone. It's over. You know now what they are, right? You've done your due diligence. You've researched what is narcissistic personality disorder, NPD. When you know, you go. Haven't you heard that with your research? When you know, you go. And you know what they are. You know what they are. You know what they are and what they can and cannot ever be. You have to forgive them. It's okay to pity them. You can love them forever. But you have to keep moving or you're going to sink to the bottom of this bottomless pit of despair and you're never going to be seen again. It happens every single day. People are lost in the abyss because they can't let go and they cannot accept the truth and reality of what has happened. Your only chance of recovery is to cut them off 100%. Go no contact forever. They are dead anyway. Zombies, hollow men or women who are empty shells and vacuous spaces where a heart and where a heart and soul used to be long ago <clears throat> when they were little bitty before they were broken before they were damaged right so that you need to look at them as an infection that will kill you deader than the worst virus or any other thing that you can think of you know, I started thinking about what I wanted to say to you and, and scripted out a lot of this podcast before the pandemic thing blew up. And we're about in the fourth, fifth day of that here in the United States after the rest of the world has been dealing with it for a little bit. And and I want to say, yep, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there and say, yeah, I think that what uh, – this kind of abuse does to their victims is like the novel coronavirus. It's like COVID-19. It's, you know, it's worse in a way because, you know, that virus doesn't always kill everybody. But I think that this infection, this kind of, of viral attack is deadly more often than not because it kills your soul. It kills your freedom, your mind, your ability to own your life and to be free of this torture <clears throat> almost always unless you take control and go no contact. You know, think of it this way. Whether they know what they're doing or not, they're dangerous because they're broken. They're dangerous because they're damaged. They are an infestation, and they lay these tiny little seeds 
these little eggs of destruction in your brain, in your heart, your lungs, every part of you that came in contact with them is infected. They're like death, plain and simple. If you linger, if you hang on, if you refuse to accept the reality of what they are, you die. You must refuse to live life looking behind you at what you lost. It is gone. Move forward. Get far, far away. Protect yourself and insulate yourself and know that it is a matter of life and death. There are many ways to die. And this is one of the worst ways to go. When you lose control of your identity, of yourself, of your mind, of your feelings, of your consciousness, your heart, you're going to lose all of it if you cannot set yourself free of this infection, if you can't cure it, heal it, get it out of you. The ones that are still in these tortuous chains of bondage are chained to a ghost who is murdering them a little bit every day and making them sick every day. But it just they just keep you barely alive, just enough so that you can suffer another day. So ask the spirits of the ones who didn't make it out, the ones who ended their life as the only recourse to freedom from this torment and captivity. It happens. In the nine months since I have been in recovery, I have known two people, two people who ended their lives in nine months that I personally met them. They came to the recovery groups. They came asking for help. They came trying to get over narcissistic abuse in relationships. And, and they're no longer with us. This is real. This is a real uh, threatening thing to your life. And these people will tell you something. If their spirits could talk, they will tell you that to linger in the past is certain death. It's the death of identity. It's the death of the soul and the spirit. And most of all, you know, here's the big one. Get ready for it. It's the death of hope. It's the death of hope because you can't believe that you're ever going to get past it or be okay. You can't believe that there is a life that's out there waiting for you to claim it. You don't think there's anything. There's no future. There's no life without this person. And you feel it in every cell in your body. You believe that. Then you know that these narc cooties have taken you over and you have a virulent infection that you have to deal with. So last thing I want to say, stand up. Stand up, soldiers. You have to be a warrior. You are injured and you are bleeding to death. You have to keep moving. You have to keep going. You have to get to safety. This is not how you want your life to end. You deserve better than that. But you have to fight for it. And whatever you do, don't look behind you and do not give up hope. 
So that's my message for today. If you enjoyed this or this message, or if you feel that it resonates with you, or if you can think of someone else who would benefit from hearing about the narc cooties, please forward this and please follow me on www.narctroopers.com where you're going to find a ton of helpful articles. You're going to find podcasts and you're going to find a lot of my video blogs, all of them to help you to give you the information and the inspiration to get through recovery and to the other side. Stay well, everybody. There's lots of ways we need to be healthy, not just with washing our hands and staying away from the coronavirus, but also from healing ourselves from this very life-threatening thing that we're going through. So we can do it. You have to keep the hope. Keep moving. Keep going. Find a way. I'm here for you. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.